21st is not only Halloween, but across very many parts of the worldwide church, today is Reformation Sunday. It was on this date, October the 31st, that Dr. Martin Luther posted his famous 95 theses on the door of the Castle Church of Wittenberg. It was an event that would trigger that movement that would become known as the Reformation. And what a Reformation it was. Across Europe, the medieval church at that time was racked with scandals and money-raising calamities that rocked it to its very core. And here was Luther, an Augustinian monk, who came along and challenged it. Luther had done everything he possibly could to win peace with God. He came from a pious family. He had attended some of the great educational and theological establishments of the land. He had forsaken the possibility of marriage and had instead embraced holy orders. But for all of that, he could not find any kind of peace with God. And he once wrote famously, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But it wasn't enough. And eventually Luther realized that it was only by salvation through faith alone in what Jesus did for him that he could have peace with God and peace with heaven. And so came the Reformation, a movement with social, economical, and political consequences that swept throughout Europe and then went on to the rest of the world, touching every continent of the world. And so it is that today, in many churches, especially Lutheran churches, October the 31st can only mean one thing, Reformation Day. It's that term, Reformation, that perhaps best describes the life and the actions of King Hezekiah of Judah. Certainly Hezekiah was a reformer. We read about him in our lesson. The historical background to that passage from Isaiah chapter 39 is very impressive. There really was something of a reformer about King Hezekiah. He transformed religion and worship. We read elsewhere in 2 Kings chapter 18 that in the very early days of Hezekiah's 29-year reign, that he went about smashing up statues and symbols of religious importance to ancient Israel. He destroyed the images of the false gods. And Hezekiah also broke the bronze serpent that had belonged to Moses, which had become something of a superstitious relic for the enfeebled Israelites. In Hezekiah, Judah had a great reformer who returned the religion of his people back to its religious roots, and one who, no doubt at the very height of his powers, was someone who scorned delights and lived laborious days. He made the Hebrew people feel good again, the feel-good factor which everybody looks for in politics and which they're trying to achieve in America with the two candidates was something which Hezekiah knew instinctively how to create. 
You felt good about yourself when you had a right idea of who God was. And that's why he was a reformer of how to worship God. And so great was this fantastic King Hezekiah that the scriptural historian describes him in incredibly flowery and impressive language. 2 Kings 18 verse 5, there was none like Hezekiah among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Here was a ruler for whom it could be said, zeal for his father's house had consumed him. There'd been no king like Hezekiah. And yet it all went a bit pear-shaped. In fact, it went more than a bit pear-shaped. It all slid, as we find it in Isaiah chapter 39. You might find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. Hezekiah in Isaiah 39 is a bit older now. Oh, he's not ancient, but he's middle-aged. He's getting on a little bit. He's been in the throne 15 or so years. And he's just been ill, very seriously ill. And there were a great many people, not least Hezekiah himself, who thought that he had reached the end of the road and the end of his reign. But we're told in the previous chapter, chapter 38, that he was permitted by God to recover. And then here arrives in this chapter a party of foreigners to wish the king all the best in his newly found recovered health. And it all goes wrong in this chapter because Hezekiah makes at least three fatal mistakes. The first mistake is that he associated with the wrong kinds of people. Verse 1, it says there that the king of Babylon sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. Babylon was south of modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. So these people had traveled many hundreds of miles across the desert to see King Hezekiah. Then they came from Babylon. Babylon, that ancient city whose name comes from Babel, the Tower of Babel. And even that name should have made Hezekiah suspicious because as every Jewish boy at school would have known, the story from Genesis 10, if it was about anything, the story of Babel was about human pride and selfish ambition, trying to build a tower to God. Babel, Babylon. Babylon was the great city which the Sumerians called the gate of God. And they didn't mean the gate to Jehovah. No, the Babylonians believed their city was to do with another god, that it was founded by the god Marduk. And so Hezekiah brings these Babylonian worshippers of Marduk right in to his temple, his, his palace. And it would be wonderful with the benefit of hindsight if we could have been there to warn him of what it was that he was doing. Be careful whom you entertain, Hezekiah. These people, Hezekiah, do not share your belief systems. 
Hezekiah, do you realize that Jerusalem might have one temple to one living God, but these people have just left a city with eight temples to eight different gods? No, don't just be careful, Hezekiah. Be worried. Be very worried. Beware, Hezekiah, of Babylonians bearing gifts. But we don't have the benefit of hindsight. These Babylonians were not the kinds of people who were just bringing bunches of grapes and glad you got ever so well again kind of cards to Hezekiah. I don't know if such cards existed then, but that was the kind of message which the kings back in Iraq and Babylon had sent for them. Glad you'd got well again. Here are a few presents. Live it up. Take it easy. Enjoy our little relationship. I don't actually think they were concerned about him at all. They were there to suss the place out. They were there to reconnoiter Judah. This was going to be either a place of potential conquest or possibly an ally in their plans, the Babylonian plans, to take over the whole of the ancient Near East. And King Hezekiah, for all of his previous brilliance, no one was like him. No one has been like him. For his brilliance, he still falls for it. Oh yes, the ancient Greeks had to build a wooden horse to get into Troy. But Hezekiah opened wide the gates and let the Babylonians in with open arms. All he had to do was a little polite thank you very much and a little hospitality, and that would more than have sufficed for the occasion. The ancient equivalent of a nice cup of tea and a cucumber sandwich would have been more than enough to see these people back on their way home again. But to bring in these people as bosom buddies all look rather desperate. It gave the impression, you see, of Judah being so lonely and in need of allies that it would talk to anybody. And if it's allies you're really looking for, you couldn't have picked much worse ones than the Babylonians. You didn't need to be a genius to work that one out. Hezekiah was going to need a very long spoon to sup with these kinds of people. Hezekiah made the mistake of associating with the wrong people. His second mistake was that he boasted in the wrong things. In verse 2, he welcomes them gladly. He doesn't just bring them in, he brings them right in to the innermost parts of his court so that they may see all that he has. For them, it must have been a bit like watching, uh, for us, watching that TV program through the keyhole. You know, the one where complete strangers are allowed to see everything about a person's house and to try to work out the personality and the person who lives in that house. Only, of course, here it was different. They knew the person whose house it was. Nonetheless, the clues were there about the kind of person this was. Verse 2 they're taken to the treasure house. And there the Babylonian visitors saw silver and gold. In another place, spices and precious oils. In the armory, there were shields and spears and swords and arrows. Oh, it must have been great fun, I think, for them. Feeling those gold coins trickle through their fingers as Hezekiah showed it all off to them. Catching glimpses of flashing light on the swords from the armory. They would have liked that. 
capturing that rich aroma of sweet spices wafting through the air as they walked with Hezekiah through his great halls. Oh, Hezekiah, I'm quite sure, gave them a never-to-be-forgotten experience. They would have plenty to tell whenever they went back to Babylon. But there's one thing missing. There's one thing which he didn't show them. There's one place where they were not led. Hezekiah does not show his worshippers, his visitors, where he worships. He doesn't take them to the temple. And that's a huge omission. Why did he not do that? It would be like somebody today visiting that part of London known as the city, where all the great stock market companies and investment institutions and banks are all gathered in a very small space within the square mile. It would be like taking someone to the city of London and ignoring St. Paul's Cathedral, a whopping great big thing right in the middle and saying, well, we won't won't look at that. The temple was so important to the Jews, yet it is not featured in Hezekiah's guided tour. And so Hezekiah, in omitting that, chooses to forget the rather huge fact that it was Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had given them all this wealth in the first place. Without Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel, Hezekiah and all his family would be away back still in Egypt. They'd be baking bricks in the hot midday sun. They would be slaves. But he didn't really want to go into all of that. That wouldn't be too impressive. That wouldn't be a way to make folk feel that you were a man of might and valor and strength to say, well, you know, we all came from slavery in another country. And where do you think the mighty prophet Isaiah is when all of these visitors are touring around the capital? He has been secreted away somewhere. There's no sign or word of him at all. In our television program, Through the Keyhole, Lloyd Grossman asks in that wonderful mid-Atlantic twang of his, who would live in a house like this? And no doubt, as the Babylonian visitors looked around at Hezekiah's house, there was a very simple answer to who would live in a house like this. It was a very rich man. It was a very powerful man. But it wasn't really a man of God. Hezekiah, the great reformer, has come to this. He is no wiser than the the person in the story that Jesus tells about the foolish builder who has so many goods and possessions that he has to take down his barns and build bigger ones. And in the story of Jesus, God says to that man, you fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. And that was Jesus issuing a little spiritual health warning to the people of his time. It's a health warning that Hezekiah could have done with. And maybe we need to hear it too. Hezekiah boasted in the wrong things. If he had told his visitors about his God, then he would have impressed them with something that they would never have seen before. Stories of the Exodus, the walls of Jericho coming down, David slaying Goliath. These are the true riches of his kingdom. But he doesn't go there doesn't want to go there. Steer away from all of that. It's weird. It's religious. Might just give them a freaky idea of who I am, he maybe thought. 
It would be Jeremiah who would say hundreds of years later, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Hezekiah associated with the wrong people. He boasted in the wrong things. The third and perhaps the biggest mistake is that he reacted in the wrong way. Well, eventually Isaiah is let out of the closet or wherever it is that he has been hidden or has chosen to hide, and he comes and tells the king how it is. Somebody has to tell him how it is. He comes to the king and he tells him that these Babylonians to whom he has just given a wonderful guided tour will one day return and take all of his possessions and his heirlooms and his family and cart them back to Babylon. And it's a prophecy, of course, which we know would prove true. And the Babylonian captivity was one of the most anguishing, difficult, painful experiences of Israel. But when Hezekiah hears this, he responds in a most unpredictable and amazing way. He replies in a manner that is smug and downright selfish. He doesn't say, no, I don't believe you, Isaiah. I don't think that's going to happen. He doesn't even say, it's impossible. Nobody will take us into captivity. Look at all our armor and our wonderful army. No, he doesn't cast any doubt on the prophet's words. Instead, in verse 8, we read, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For, he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. There will be peace and security in my days. Imagine if somebody came and told you that our country would be invaded, our children would be taken away, and our church would be destroyed, and all that we could say was, oh, well, as long as I see my day out of it. And that's what Hezekiah says. There will be peace and security in my days. It's probably the worst kind of response to God's word that there could ever be. It's the, so what? So long as I'm all right, Jack, kind of response. And I think that that's every preacher's worst nightmare. I mean, if you're going to attack the preacher, come out and out and say, I can't stand a word of what you're on about. It's the biggest load of rubbish. But when somebody else has a sort of a, I'm all right, Jack, response, it's devastating. It's a big lesson for all of us. Because if you're like me, you will find it easy to listen to a message in church on a Sunday, recognize its truth, know that in that word there is a word from God Almighty. You can do that. I can do that. But then can't we also go out into our lives and just behave as if everything is exactly the same and that there was no word from God? Comfortable Christianity can be very easily achieved by attending church week after week where the gospel message of truth and grace is faithfully proclaimed and then going out the door and not paying the slightest bit of attention to what was said. The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For, he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Hezekiah's three mistakes. He associated with the wrong kinds of people. He boasted in the wrong things. And he reacted to God's word in the wrong way. Now hang on a minute. Because I said to you at the beginning that he was a good king. 
You'd hardly believe that looking at this. The words I quoted earlier from 2 Kings said that he was the best king. And so he was. But he wasn't always good. Before we close the book, there's a question which is so obvious that we nearly don't need to ask it, but we'll ask it anyway. What went wrong with Hezekiah? Why is it that the great man got it so wrong? Did he just have a bad hair day? You know he wasn't in good form. He'd been sick for a long time. He'd been at death's door, and he had taken his eye off the ball when these people came, and he just made a mistake. Maybe he wasn't fully recovered. Perhaps he took bad advice from someone. Well, all of those things are possible, I suppose. But I wonder if it didn't have something to do with his time of life. In the previous chapter, chapter 38, verse 10, I think there's a big clue. There, Hezekiah describes himself as being in the middle of his days. In the middle of his days. I don't think that's a flattering self-description. I don't think it was something of which he was proud. Look at me, I'm in the middle of my days. He was middle-aged. Not an easy time for faith to flourish. It's easy for me to say that because I'm not there yet. But middle age isn't, and neither is middle-aged faith. The joy of first meeting Jesus is maybe a long time ago. And it's a long time to go before we maybe see him face to face. And we're in the middle of our days. It was another great reformer, the Scottish reformer John Knox, who went through a period in his life in his 40s when he felt totally flat and had no personal life with God. In his journals, John Knox wrote, I will keep the ground that God has given me, and perhaps in his grace he will ignite me again. But ignite me or not, I will by his grace and in his power hold the ground. And he stayed committed. He stuck to the courts and he transformed a nation for God when he was in his 50s. Middle-aged days and middle-aged faith can be tough. The younger days of excitement have gone. The later days of reflecting on what we managed to achieve are not yet with us. And it can feel as if we're dragging our feet day after day, week after week, month after month. But there is still the unending gospel of Jesus Christ. He is still true. He is still here. The gospel is still true. The gospel is still here. And that gospel will go on being proclaimed, God willing, if we play our part. And if we can but keep the ground that God gives us at whatever stage of life and remain faithful to him, then perhaps in his grace he will ignite us again. And so October the 31st, Reformation Day, the day when we think of Martin Luther across the world could be for us a Reformation Day.
when we realize that we have a part to play in God's plan, whatever our age and whatever our stage of faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word of truth to us. Forgive us if we associate with the wrong people, boast in the wrong things, respond to you in the wrong ways. May we reply to you faithfully and actively. By your Spirit, we pray that you will help us to live by faith all our days so that we would be your loving revolutionaries, your reformers in this time and place. Men and women who live out and out for you. For we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn is number